everyone. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series. Today, we've got a really interesting conversation for you. We've brought together BNY Mellon's Director of Blockchain and Digital Assets, Lori Kehoe, with Sheila Warren. Sheila's the head of the data, blockchain, and digital assets team at the World Economic Forum. And she's also a podcast host herself at Coindesk, one of the most respected blockchain and crypto-focused media platforms. And for this episode, Lori and Sheila have put their heads together to talk through one of the most complex challenges within the rapidly moving digital asset space, and that's ESG. As many of you know, BNY Mellon made significant headlines earlier this year when we announced the industry's first digital assets unit. And we see digital assets as becoming increasingly mainstream to the global financial ecosystem, thus our move into the space. But one of our other top firm-wide priorities is embracing environmental, social, and governance principles, ESG. And while some in the industry have scrutinized the growing prominence of digital assets in the context of ESG concerns, often around energy consumed by associated technologies, Sheila and Lori walk listeners through some of the issues and also identify opportunities for the digital asset space to become a more ESG-friendly ecosystem. They talk through how companies can embrace digital assets while continuing to deliver on important and enduring ESG commitments. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. These are two of the leading experts in the field. One, of course, from BNY Mellon and the other from the World Economic Forum. Two great vantage points for this very important topic. Listen, rate, review, give us your feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, we appreciate you listening. We'll see you at the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, we're incredibly fortunate and excited to have someone with your expertise, your background, here to weigh in on this important, but also this complex topic, looking at the world of digital assets, of blockchain, of DLT, and ESG. So I really think that the impetus and the reason behind this podcast is that we're currently facing an exciting time for business because of digital assets and all the opportunities they bring but also how we can manage to fulfill our commitments when it comes to ESG. So the purpose of this podcast and what we're here to talk about today is to take a closer look at this and to understand these dynamics and how they work together, but also how best we can move forward. So really, before we get started and we kind of get our teeth stuck into those areas, Really, it'd be great to get a little bit more context from you in relation to um, your background and also how you've become famous in the digital asset world. And, and that's true, whether you like it or not, um, but also your work within the World Economic Forum. So over to you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Lori, for having me on and to the whole Bank of New York Mellon team. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation. I think it's one of the most important things we can be talking about. Uh, and just kind of to contextualize this in the immediate instance, we're certainly seeing a lot of language coming out of Washington, coming out from other uh, political leaders and regulators around this topic of ESG, uh, whether it's thinking through the environmental implications of certain forms of crypto, certain manifestations of crypto, specifically Bitcoin, or whether it's kind of questioning, is there utility, is there value here and everything from the underbanked or unbanked? How do we think about financial inclusion? Is that real? 
And you've seen Senator Warren herself kind of indicate that this is the, a lot of what's happening and what's top of mind. And I think that's indicative of a lot of leaders who aren't necessarily uh, talking about this publicly, but are having these thoughts privately. So uh, so I, I run the uh, digital assets and blockchain team at the World Economic Forum. I'm headquartered in San Francisco. I'm also the deputy head of our Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which looks across emerging and frontier technologies and thinks about how their convergence is actually shaping the society that we live in. We do quite a bit of work around governance and policy and thinking about how governance and policy, whether it's regulation or other policies in general or governance itself within a particular protocol or business, can actually help accelerate benefit and mitigate risk of technologies. And of course, blockchains are critical. Uh, and what I think is really powerful about blockchains and why I spend so much of my attention on them, and I suppose why I've, I've gotten a bit of a reputation for talking about them quite a bit in digital assets as well, uh, is, is really rooted in governance. It's the idea that these decentralized systems, and we can have debate after debate over how decentralized is any individual system. That's a worthwhile conversation to have. But the whole notion of decentralization is extraordinarily powerful, not just from the disintermediation perspective of removing a central authority or removing a honeypot or any, any number of, of, of consequences of removal of a centralized intermediary, but also because of the power that it gives to different actors in the ecosystem. The forum has talked quite a bit about the shift that we want to see and that we're starting to see from extractive shareholder capitalism to more of what we call a stakeholder capitalism model, where we're really thinking more about equitable allocation of both risk and reward across a broader spectrum of stakeholders, everything from employees to users of a blockchain protocol. So we come at this and I come at this with the perspective that we ought to be focusing on improving lives. We ought to be focusing on raising standards of living around the world. We should not be anchoring ourselves in a, either a Western notion or a kind of proto-tech vision of the world and how it operates. Uh, and I think that distributed ledgers and decentralized systems are one of the most powerful tools we have to realize changes in a different world. Thanks for that, Sheila. And one of the really important things around this topic is that there are um, I guess there's all these different terms out there. And, and rather than kind of go into them individually and explain them, it'd be great to maybe spend a minute or two, if you wouldn't mind, just talking a little bit about how, I guess, blockchain technology, tokenization, and cryptocurrencies work together. Um, just before we jump in to talk more in detail about, I guess, digital assets, crypto, and ESG, just a level set for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So, you know, again, I won't do a blockchain 101, but I, I certainly hope that those who aren't familiar will take advantage of any of a, a billion resources out there that can kind of educate on, on what a blockchain is and how it works at a, at a kind of layperson level. Uh, but what the, the way a blockchain functions, I think I want to anchor this in governance to respond to your question. So when you think about the stakeholders in a system, right? So right now, if you think about a retail model, you've got basically, uh, I'm a consumer, I buy a product, you know, uh, and then my engagement with that product is limited essentially to my handing over, you know, money of some kind or assets in exchange for that product. And then I kind of go off and use the product, right? When that product's financial services, there's a pretty standard way we understand how that happens. And we've all engaged in that, so I won't belabor it. When you bring a blockchain into the system, there's this notion that you actually retain stake. Now, this isn't always the case, but let's go with it for the sake of argument. You retain stake. You retain some influence over how the underlying system itself is functioning. And that is often done through tokens. 
Now, a token is, you know, we can go into there's a million definitions of tokens. And again, I encourage people to get into that philosophy, the debate that rages around what are what is or isn't a token. But for our purposes, let's imagine a token as a manifestation of the investment that you have made in a particular system. Now, in some systems, that token actually gives you what's analogous to voting rights. And those voting rights have the weight of the amount of token that you hold, et cetera. And so with that weight, with that voting right, you can actually provide influence or input into how the system itself is operated and runs. Now, that is a very, you know, bare, scaled back, bare bones kind of uh, vision of token economics. But the idea is that the you're more of a user of the system, participant in the system, than you are kind of a consumer of the system. And that notion, I think, is really, really important. Now, the next thing that I'll say is, when you engage in this kind of model of what's called tokenomics very commonly, you can engage in fractionalized ownership of things. Now, this is not a new concept. Currently, you can own, you know, part of a building here and there. And you do this is done through kind of real estate investment, you know, vehicles and things like that all the time. Imagine that happening with any kind of asset. So you can digitize an asset and you can own a fractional share of it. That representation is done via the token that you hold. And then you, along with all of the other owners of that asset, can engage in a democratic-ish, depending on the governance system, process to determine what happens with that asset. And so the digitization of assets, not only are assets moving digital, which again, there's digital representations of things, that's kind of a historical thing, that's been pretty known, right? But you can then separate, essentially, the ownership of the asset in a whole, you can fractionalize it, and then you can create secondary markets around all of those assets and all those fractions that you own. So it's taking all of that, but you retain stake. You retain this ability to influence that system. And that is what I think is fundamentally powerful about these systems in the context of what I was talking about, which is the stakeholder capitalism allocation of risk and reward concept that I think is so powerful and important and that I don't think is getting enough attention, uh, both in the eyes of political leaders and regulators, but also even in kind of the popular press. Wow. Okay. Well, that is a um, insightful and also, uh, I, I think, a, a rather exhaustive answer to, to everybody who's listening. Um, one of the other areas, right, that we wanted to chat about is what's going on right now, Sheila, in the digital asset, crypto, blockchain, DLT landscape. What are your thoughts as to where we're at right now? Well, I mean, I think the question is more, what isn't going on, right? So uh, so I, I think one of the the positive things of the, I hesitate to say that anything positive came out of the pandemic, but, you know, it, a lot of people were you know at home and working really hard. And so we kind of saw this build phase within the digital asset ecosystem and the crypto ecosystem. As a result, I think we've catapulted ahead. We've kind of almost avalanched in some ways. Uh, forward in terms of uh, what I actually thought we would see. If you'd asked me in 2019 where I thought we'd be in 2021, I would have had us behind where we are now. And I do think that's related to the fact that people kind of had to focus. They had to put their anxiety and energy somewhere and they put it into building. So we've seen an explosion of different opportunities um, achieve more mainstream attention. So let me give you an example of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens date back to crypto kitties, right? Which were, I mean, I'm, my, I, I'm a crypto kitty. <laughs> and that came out, I think, in like the 2018 timeframe. So they're not new per se. What's new is that there was a lot of infrastructure built around NFTs. There was a lot more awareness. Uh, these were picked up by uh, a number of different communities that found them really powerful ways to kind of monetize their creations. And so you've seen the emergence of what we're now calling the creator economy, the metaverse, like 
this is a, it's not a new concept, but it's really blown up and exploded in ways that I didn't think we'd get here this fast, frankly. I thought it'd be another maybe year. We also, I think most of us in this space saw this coming, but we thought we were maybe another year, 18 months, maybe even two years out from where we are today. Similar explosion around DeFi. Last summer was called the summer of DeFi. DeFi stands for decentralized finance, DeFi. And that is basically the provision of financial services in a decentralized model. So financial services, everything from credit, insurance, you know, whatever it is, right? Like all these things are, are available, um, leverage, all of that uh, in decentralized systems. That has, again, massively exploded. And it's actually hit the attention of a lot of the regulatory bodies around the world uh, in conjunction with crypto. So what you're seeing is where before we were talking about, you know, crypto is this kind of monolith. Now we actually have some differentiation within the ecosystem and these different options, if you want a product offerings, what you want to call them, you can kind of, depending on your frame, you'll call them different things. But I would call them opportunities and manifestations of a combination of decentralized governance and the underlying technology. So we have come a tremendously long way. And I would really say, you know, what isn't happening right now? There's just so much engagement with this space. And it seems like every week I'm hearing about some new exciting project uh, that, you know, early days, a lot of these will not succeed, but something will stick. And as a result, we're getting more attention, good and bad. Do you think NFTs are here to stay? They're a real thing? You know, I, I think all of this is here to stay. I think it's a matter of like how, how mainstream does this go? But I think that we have to think about the cultural context of NFTs, right? You had a lot of creators who were really, really getting cut out of a monetary reward by either centralized platforms or by the system or, you know, whatever it is, or by historical inequities, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that this is an, a response to that. I think that the growth that you're seeing around this is a response to that historical shutout and the recognition that they were taking on a lot of the risk and really not obtaining as much of the reward as I think anybody would have deemed fair. So uh, I think some form of NFTs is definitely here to stay. Is it the current form? And that's not only for me to say, right? I think that's going to depend on those in the ecosystem, what gets adopted and what gets the pickup. But there's no doubt in my mind that the creator economy and that concept is something that we've been moving towards for a very long time. And with the new uh, innovations we're seeing in Web3, I absolutely think that that is something we all need to be not just preparing for, but excited about, I would think. Okay. Uh, in relation to DeFi, so kind of back to your point, right? Um, is really the, D the future of DeFi based around governance? I think so. You know, I think that, that DeFi is going to, I personally, this is a personal view, I think DeFi is going to succeed or fail based on the perceptions more than the reality, because of course, this is the world we live in, right? The perceptions around how decentralized it truly is uh, and how much stake, you know, how much value that stake is actually providing to individuals. So uh, this all comes down to how DAOs are governed. DAO, D-A-O, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. This is an area, I'm like obsessed with this. I'm a former corporate lawyer, so I, you know, corporate governance is something really interesting to me. DAOs are not corporations. They are a new form of organizing stakeholders into a collective body. And there are a lot, there's some DAO experiments that have resulted in like Lord of the Flies type anarchy, you know, and there are some that are highly structured and they kind of mimic traditional kind of corporate systems. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see the experiments happening there and what survives and what doesn't. And I think we're in kind of the, the, the renaissance of DAOs, if you will, like kind of a, a phase of tremendous exploration. And what happens with DAOs, I personally think, is going to determine what happens with DeFi, crypto, like all of these systems. The confidence that people have that a DAO is ultimately going to reflect 
their point of view in a fair and equitable manner. Not that their point of view is always going to be the one that prevails. That's not how democracy works even now, right? But that there will be some fairness and equity built into that model, I think is going to determine how much people are willing to engage in these models. And that's going to determine, you know, how the ecosystem flourishes and thrives. Okay. Thank you. Um, what, no, no, look. And, and I you have know opinions, you know, I have some points of view here, so. Oh, and, and 100%, that is why you're here and we're, we're keen to learn, right? Um, I, I think one of the things that comes up here as well is, is an interesting area. So if we look at, I guess, millennials and Gen Z, and they really feel that, um, you know, I guess digital assets, blockchain, crypto is is the internet of their generation, right? They're, they're passionate about it. Um, and they have points of view and they're happy to share. And there's no shortage, I guess, of, of opinions when it comes to this topic, right? And, and more power to them. But also one of the things about that group is that they're extremely, I guess, environmentally conscious and climate conscious and, and certainly have a, an awareness um, and an increasing awareness around ESG. Um, and this comes back to that point, right? How um, how do we, I guess, um, how do we deal with that, I guess, two-sided conversation around digital assets and ESG? Um, and what do you think really millennials are thinking about when it comes to that, right? How, how do they ethically invest in digital assets? So I think you got to move beyond millennials, right? So this piece of art is, for, is by my daughter, who who is eight. And I think this generation, her generation, is going to be what I call crypto native. So millennials and Zoomers are digital natives. They grew up with, you know, the device attached to their whatever it is, right? Uh, this next generation is even beyond that. And they are going to be much more Web3 oriented. Um, and I could actually imagine, you know, 10 years from now, my daughter sees this video and she's like, how could you put my artwork in the frame without, you know, some sort of comp whatever model around that, you know, whatever it is, right? I could absolutely see my kids telling me, how could you ever put your information online? Like, why would you ever, are, were you in, what were you thinking? Were you crazy? You know, how could you do that? So we're moving into a very different model of a generation that is still being formed today. And the pandemic is going to be critically important to their awareness. So I think you have to look well beyond millennials and Zoomers who are kind of driving, I think, a bit this NFT moment, if you want to call it that, um, into the next generation. Because that's, I think, who we have to be having in mind and who we're building for. And so when you think about uh, the awareness that elementary school age children or tweens have about the environment, it is dramatically different from what I think you or I or my, my parents' generation, you know, their awareness of the environment. It's just dramatically, dramatically different. So my daughters are the ones who drive our composting, whatever it is, like those activities in our household, right? I mean, it's it's it comes through the educational process. It comes through their just observations of the world around them. They've all lived through, I'm in San Francisco, the wildfires, the changes, climate, all of you've seen it all. They understand implicitly and viscerally, like physically, they understand and have physical, you know, almost like cell, cellular level awareness of what's happening to the world. So it is not surprising, nor should it be, that there is more and more momentum towards this kind of activity and towards environmental responsibility, towards sustainability, towards social inclusion. They've also lived through a lot of period, periods of massive unrest all over the world, not just pandemic-related, right? Social justice-related. So yeah, I think we, we are going to fundamentally rethink what ESG means. It's going to be about more than purchasing carbon offsets. It's going to move well beyond that to say, no, we want to make sure that isn't happening in the first place. And so I think that ESG can benefit tremendously from 
the crypto, I actually think the crypto ecosystem can be a driver of a dramatic change in how we conceive of ESG because of the governance that we were speaking about. In decentralized models and systems, the accountability works very differently than how it works in centralized systems. Now, in some ways, it's a lot harder to create accountability because there's nobody in charge, right? There's no central person to kind of fine or point a finger at or penalize or whatever. On the other hand, there's a collective responsibility. And as this new ethos and awareness of sustainability and social inclusion becomes more and more dominant, social, culturally, politically, and otherwise, which we're already starting to see as you get younger and younger people into government, you're seeing what their predilections and their preferences and priorities are, right? You're already seeing this. So as that continues to happen, there's going to be a lot of skepticism about traditional ESG, which I think is fair. That was designed for a slightly different time. The new metrics that have come out were designed for the current time, but they weren't designed necessarily thinking through thinking deeply towards a new society and a new emphasis. So crypto is going to pave the way on that. It's something I firmly believe. It's why at the forum, we're launching our Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator, which we call CISA, which is focused on not just development around new metrics, but saying we can't just isolate environmental questions and not look at the social and governance implications of them. And in fact, governance should be driving how we think about the environmental and social consequences or metrics that we are developing, right? So we had to move beyond decarbonization, although the blockchain can provide new methods of tracking that, which are very interesting. We have to think about how are we creating new models? How are we using non-arable land is something I talk about a lot, right? Like non-arable land, if we can create demand for renewables, that actually is really critically important to the shift we can make as a society towards use of renewables. So all these things, you know, uh, the blockchain ecosystem can support and provide. Tokens can help with this. And I think it behooves us as a crypto community to come together and think really hard, like move beyond our factions, move beyond our own individual desires to make the case that our protocol is the most best one, whatever. Move beyond that and say, how can we as a community recognize that we have a broader call to action? And that's something we all need to be paying a lot of attention to and being honest, being intellectually honest about what is real and what is not real. I mean, just taking a step back, right, for a second, which is really, right, in your opinion, what are the top three, I guess, pressing ESG concerns around blockchain, crypto, and digital assets? So a kind of a quick-fire question. Yeah, are you asking me personally, or are you asking what is being what is perceived as being the biggest risks in the... Because those are, I think, slightly different answers. Maybe I'll answer the first well, one first, just to kind of level set for people. I'd love to hear both, yeah. Yeah. So what I think is... Get, I mean, you just kind of have to read the news, right? If you Google, like, crypto or Bitcoin, or what do you see? Well, you see the energy use of Bitcoin. That's a huge topic of consideration. Um, you see kind of the ransomware is this supporting, is Bitcoin specifically, but that's extended to all crypto. Is it actually paving the way for criminals to engage in antisocial behavior? That's another really critical one. Uh, and I would say third is, uh, is crypto doing enough or can it help with the problems of financial inclusion? So those, I think, are the three talking points we're seeing a lot of policymakers make. And that's being reflected in the press, symbiotic, like as the press reports more on this you know, the, the political leaders pick it up and it kind of goes back and forth. So those are the three things. Now, it's not that I don't think those things are important. I just think that they are, they're kind of adjacent to what I think are the critical questions. So what I think are the most important things to consider are going to be unsurprising based on this discussion we've had so far. Governance, what does decentralization offer as an alternative to the systems we currently have? How do we create meaningful accountability within decentralized systems, which I think is an extraordinarily hard problem that uh, I I 
stay up at night thinking about, among other things that keep me up at night, but you know, it's a really hard problem. Um, and thirdly, I would say, how do we tie environmental and social measures together? And how do we create more consonance and coherence in how we are articulating that environmental justice is social justice? And you know, all of these things flow together, right? They aren't distinct the way that a lot of people like to pave them as be, or paint them as being. They are very, very integrated. There's no question that the the um the penalties of environmental irresponsibility fall predominantly on poor communities, communities of color, you know, certain parts of the of the globe far more than others. Right, the ability, I and mean, when you just think about, like the, the example I always use to this when I get pushback on this on this point is, where does you think your trash goes? Where do you imagine that your trash goes? You think your trash is being buried in your wealthy community suburbs backyard? No, it's not. Where do you think it goes? Right, it's going in the ocean, or it's going to being buried in a poor community, or in some cases being shipped over a border to a poorer country and being landed there. That's what's happening to your trash. Now imagine what's happening with everything else, right? So these are real paths that have been structured by society, uh, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes with absolutely you know, disregard for the lives of other human beings or others on the planet, uh, sometimes maliciously, almost deliberately as like a penalty, right, for whatever it might be. Uh, and these are patterns that we have to be very cognizant of and aware of that really don't get talked about. And so I see part of my role here at the forum with the, you know, the, the, platform, if you will, I've been privileged enough to, to have access to, um, to, to spotlight these things and to say, if we're not thinking about holistic solutions, what are we doing any of this for? One question, right? So do you think that the, I guess, the, the energy consumption factors um, that we've just spoken about, do you think they're having a real impact in terms of investor appetite and interest in, in crypto and digital assets? You know, I guess I'm more of a cynic about it. You know, um, I I don't know that they are. And, and let me just say a couple of things on that point. So, you know, there's no question. Let's just talk about Bitcoin mining because, you know, you're probably going to ask me at some point. So we just get to it. Right. So, yes, Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy. Great. That is a fact. And anyone who says it's not a fact is just has an agenda that's not about intellectual honesty. So let's put it that way. It does. Now, I find a lot of the comparisons I've used this kind of apples to zucchini phrase. It's gotten some pickup, you know. I just find them really unhelpful and unproductive. Like, okay, so Bitcoin mining uses the same energy consumption as the entire economy of X country, right? I'm a lawyer. You give me two things, I can compare them. It's a skill, right? It doesn't mean that's a useful comparison that gets us anywhere. So in my mind, it's less about is Bitcoin mining, you know, consuming the same amount of energy as the economy of Venezuela or is it Argentina or is it the Ukraine? It's more like we are at time zero on Bitcoin mining, at time one, we need to be showing measurable, significant improvement. And we can define that as a community, or we can have it defined for us. And I'm speaking now as a Bitcoin community, right? Or really as a crypto community, because what happens to Bitcoin has implications for all of crypto, whether people like it or not. That's just a fact. There's, there's not a lot of understanding by a lot of people who have decision-making authority around the differences here. We're trying to educate, but you know, sometimes it just gets all swept together. So how are we showing demonstrable market improvements over time? in the use of renewables. So it's not so much like offsetting what's happening. Again, it's like converting into the better way of, of being, right? That's what we want to focus on. And to do that, we have to have honesty about what's happening now. Where do we want to get? How do we get there? What's the path? What is the reasonable time frame to get there? And by reasonable, I mean ambitious. It should be heavily a, a point of focus, which it is for a lot of miners, right? To be fair to them, you know, and then let's hold accountability for that. 
Like, I think that is a much more useful conversation than, oh, you know, blah, blah. And the reason for that, let me just kind of finish this thought, is that the comparison of Bitcoin mining to X industry, even if it's the traditional legacy financial system or gold or whatever, is predicated in the idea that Bitcoin is going to go away. It's not going to go away. That's not a thing. That's not happening. That, you know, that's toothpaste out of the tube. We're not putting it back in. Bitcoin's here. So let's make it better as opposed to what? Suddenly, like, it's just nothing. It just vanishes. That's just not realistic. So this is why I kind of, uh, this is my frustration personally with the, with the current rhetoric and conversation, which I do think is starting to shift. I do think we're seeing a little bit more focus on, okay, you know, maybe it's a unwilling, reluctant, you know, acceptance of the fact that Bitcoin is here. It's part of our ecosystem. So let's try to make it as sustainable as we can and understand what that's going to take and provide the support needed perhaps to do that or incentives or others, you know, to do that. And that's where I think ESG metrics can play a role because if you can measure something, then you can make more meaningful comparisons about it. And then I think we will see investors adjust and adopt when they understand, you know, what is really happening uh, in this space and where is it going and when is it going to get there? I think that's, I think we will see some shift and some uh, in the way that investors are reacting to the space. Okay, great point. Well, one thing I wanted to kind of drill into a little bit more is there, there is a lot of talk of renewable energy as being the, the source for Bitcoin mining and, and, and node validation um, and activities of that nature. Um, really, how, like, how can we prove that the energy is renewable, right? And, and I guess this kind of feeds back into decentralized governance and things like this. But, you know, if I am a cynic, you know, and I want to pick and probe, how do I prove that? So that's this is the the perennial question, right? And there are definitely people who are in this every day who are thinking about, you know, this Bitcoin, that Bitcoin, you know, whatever it is. Uh, you once a Bitcoin is mined, no, at present time, you can't. There's no clean Bitcoin or dirty Bitcoin. It doesn't work that way, right? However, what you can do is look at the source of energy for basic mining operations. What is the source of that energy? And so again, that becomes a kind of a time one or time, you have to kind of create a new time zero, right? You have to kind of look at what happened in the past, be like, that is where it was. Now we're at this point in time. What do we need to be seeing in terms of the sources that are going into those mining operations? And that is something that you can pay attention to and look at, right? The same way that you can look and see, you know, uh, uh, is this is this source coming from this place? Now, I am not an expert on energy, on how energy grids work. And so what I've understood about this is that when you're dealing with a general grid, this is impossible. You don't know the source. It all gets mixed up. You can't tell that this came from over here, over there. However, when you're talking about building new farms and new things, you actually could imagine a Bitcoin mining operation. This is theoretical, okay? That is fueled entirely by a wind farm that was built for that purpose. That is a huge infrastructure investment. I want to be very clear, but that is not easy to do. But in theory, you could actually have something like that, where then the mining operation, kick, the extra gets kicked off to that local community and you kind of do new things with it. So when you're talking about brand new sources of renewables, which have not yet existed, there is an opportunity, from what I'm told, to create you know, measurement there and to kind of prove that. But if you're using existing energy, it's just not possible to do. And it's something we have to be, again, honest about, right? That isn't necessarily fatal. I, that's where I think that's where I think this whole thing falls apart because that's not fatal because that's true of everything that we do. Like, I don't know what's going into my computer right now either, right? Like I actually literally have no idea what's going into this. That's not my area of expertise. I have to kind of rely on external bodies to tell me that, right? And I have to kind of trust that they're telling me the truth. Now, 
a blockchain can help provide more evidence for that uh, case and, and show that, that is actually more true or not, right? It actually can help with some of that. But I think it's really about how much investment are we making in renewables as a global society, but also at a national and even a, a you know, a, a, a province or, or municipality is the word I'm looking for, a municipal, a municipal level. Like how much are we investing in this? And are there opportunities because of the of the consumption that's um that is is deployed by some of these operations? Is there a way to kind of enable that to be something that encourages that sort of manifestation in parts of the world where there hasn't necessarily been incentive to do so? Now, this is all, you know, I'm gonna say I'm gonna be very honest. This is all slightly, it's adjacent to and slightly out of my area of expertise, but it is something that I think we have to be, again, intellectually honest about, which I there's not a lot of that happening right now, that I know for sure. And also we have to explore creatively what are mechanisms that we can use that can show and prove what is actually going on? What are the limitations on those? And then is that going to translate into this time one to time zero, time zero rather to time one um, trajectory that is trending towards, you know, the positive change that we want to see? And that in my mind is kind of what we have to be focusing our attention on as opposed to what's happened historically and other things which are unfortunate and behind us. Yeah, look, I think you raised a number of really good points there. And that 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 fact, although, you know, simple is very true, right? You know, uh, we can say that the energy consumption for, for Bitcoin mining or other forms of mining um, and looking at validation for renewable sources, when we actually don't look for validation for what we have in front of us right now. So that is an interesting outlook. Um, and it does pose a very good question, right? Um, I think the other piece I want to touch on briefly was in relation to, um, I guess, there's a lot of talk about the consensus mechanism for, for Bitcoin being proof of work, and then these other consensus mechanisms, such as proof of stake, et cetera, proof of authority being far more energy efficient. What are your thoughts on that? Is that true? Is that the future? Is that the is that the the, the solution to this problem? So I think there are a number of different solutions to this problem. You know, I think that the, there it is measurable that certain consensus mechanisms are less energy intensive than others. That is, again, like that's just sort of a, uh, we can just all have to take that as our predicate. Like that is true. We wouldn't be so eager to move from proof of work to proof of stake in the Ethereum community if that were not the case, right? So there's just instances of this that we kind of know to be the case. Now, that being said, you know, I do think that there are other, when you think about L2, which is layer two solutions or applications, but on top of layer one protocols, layer one is kind of the, the uh, decentralized protocol. And then layer two is an application built on top of that, that may be more or less centralized depending on, you know, what it is. So I'll kind of just leave that there. Um, when you think about layer two, I think there are opportunities to think about what are we actually doing with what exists, you know? And so are there ways that we can actually take things off chain and then minimize the need to be on chain? So being on chain is kind of saying this really crudely, is kind of what uses the energy and off-chain activities don't use the same energy. So are there ways to kind of pull more things off-chain and then have like um, uh, calibration, you know, have these moments that are kind of on-chain and kind of make, uh, think about block size, like things like this, right? So I don't want to get too technical for, for your listeners, but there are things that can be done and there are experiments that are underway at the moment to say, if we take as a predicate that proof of work is the most secure way of engaging, which is the argument, right, for proof of work is that it is it is uh, highly secure. So if we take that as true, which I believe it is true, 
Um, then, you know, are there things we can do to mitigate the energy intensity of that by shoving more into each instance where we have to deploy that energy or taking certain things, recognizing not everything has to be necessarily on chains and things can be off, like things like this. And that is a really interesting conversation that's happening in the community around this. But I think the the major takeaway for me is, you know, the idea that this was news to the crypto community, like, hey, energy, you know, this was not, everyone's known this for a very, 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 very long time. There have been a lot of people who have been very concerned about this and sounding this alarm within the community for a very long time, certainly longer than that I've been doing. And I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm an alarm sounder. I'm more of like a, what do we do about it person, right? But there, this is not new. And so what I find interesting is, you know, we've seen these attacks on crypto over time. We saw the kind of only criminals and you know, nerds and criminals, right? And then we saw like no one will ever be able to use it. It makes no sense. Like, oh, well, you know, now we're back to like, look at how horrible it is and horrible people are using it to kind of like hold us hostage as a society, which actually the reality there is like the worst thing you can do if you're a ransomware person is, is Bitcoin. That's like, the, that's like the dumbest thing you could do, right? Like you want cash, you don't want Bitcoin. So all these things I think are, are interesting. And, and again, they're not without some truth. We have to be, it's not, you can't just like dismiss all these concerns and say, oh no, you know, no criminals use Bitcoin. Of course, that's how it, of course, that's what it kind of began in the early days, right? These are just facts. That's okay. You don't throw the baby out, the, out with the bathwater. What you say is, how do we do better? And I all, I think a lot of this is a reaction uh, from systems that are recognizing that they don't have a better alternative. They're willing to recognize, they're willing to acknowledge, I think, legacy systems that there have been historical inequities. There have been a lot of problems with these systems. They don't work for everybody, but there isn't really a better alternative. And so cryptos kind of emerge as an alternative. And I, I do think that that's alarming. And I can see why that is alarming. But I also think that it, it remains, at least in my view, one of the better options I've seen to help address some of these systemic problems and systemic inequities. And that's why I remain, you know, um, committed to seeing it get to the best place it can be. And then I think we have to evaluate when we've made some of these changes. Now as a society, what do we think? But we have to kind of give everybody a chance to get there, you know, and to see that these are problems that take time to solve. They're not easy. If they were easy, we would have already been, already been solved. It's not obvious that the trade-off between security and energy intensivity, it's not obvious where to fall on that. I think it's obvious for some kinds of transactions more than others, but like we just have to have a more nuanced conversation. And as a society, I don't know that we have nuanced conversations anymore, especially in the yes. sphere. So here we are. A hundred percent. Yeah. Not everything is black and white. Um, the older yeah. I get, the more I realize that for sure. <laughs> Indeed. Another question, a final question. What are... You know, what are some of the, the innovative, I guess, ideas, solutions, companies out there that perhaps you've seen that you could share an overview of? Yeah, well, you know, I, I hesitate to ever name names because I don't want to be seen as anointing anyone. Um, and I think we've touched on a lot of the areas I think are really exciting. One thing we haven't touched on, I think, is, is social tokens. Uh, this, I, I think these are really interesting. And so if you look at things like Friends with Benefits or, you know, other kinds of opportunities here, you're sort of seeing a development that stems from the creator economy around how do we create uh, social value around some of these, these tokens and tokenomics we talked about? And how do we create a crypto economics? This is kind of a new blooming field of crypto economics, right? So this is kind of token economics, you know, blown up to crypto economics. And how do these systems provide new economic models uh, that again, can my focus, of course, so is equitable allocation of risk and reward, but there are a lot of other things you can do with these models that are really fascinating. And we're seeing a lot of academic investigation of this, which I think is really exciting, both from economists and others. Anyhow, 
Maybe not point aside. I think that the, the notion that the token economy can allow a manifestation of value beyond just creation and creator economy, but actually thinking through everything from kind of influencer uh, to sort of like how you represent yourself online. So another thing, along with crypto nativity, is digital twinning. So you're really seeing more and more, you know, especially during the pandemic, right, when we were all online, who you are online and who you are in real life are very symbiotic. So digital personhood is actual personhood. It's not the case anymore that like you're your person here and then your avatar is like totally separate from who you are. Your identity psychologically is actually formed in part by experiences you have online. And there are a lot of studies about this in tweens and early adolescents and teenagers, particularly during the pandemic, about how because they were relegated to an online experience that could be constructed, that actually affected both positively negative with their self-esteem. You've seen online bullying lead to horrible instances and you know, all kinds of horrible things happening. That's real. Online bullying is real bullying, right? Online praise is real praise, and you respond to it similarly. So social tokens scare me, frankly, a little bit, but I also think that they're a very logical next step to the realities of how we engage digitally uh, and how that is really, how a digital personhood is becoming more and more uh, the manifestation of who we are in our in our lives. So that's something else I'm, I'm tracking, uh, again, with some trepidation, but also a lot of excitement. Okay. Well, look, a massive and, and big BNY Mellon thank you, Sheila Warren from the World Economic Forum for your time today to discuss the, the world of digital assets and, and ESG um, and the future of both. So a big thank you from all of us for your time. Well, thank you, Laurie, for having me on. It was really a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Tom here again. Thanks again for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, uh, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, if you're willing, leave a review or a rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and bnymelon.com. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you on the next episode.